We're starting Colossians. So we're in chapter 1 of that letter from Paul. It is right after Philippians, before Thessalonians. You will find it on the Pew Bibles on page 400 and, sorry, not 4, 983. Definitely not a 4. That's a 9, I tell you. <clears throat> Hear the word of our God. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God, our Father. Isn't it nice to have shorter scripture readings? Not going on and on. Let's pray. Father, According to the riches of your glory, grant that we would be strengthened with power through the Spirit in our inmost being, so that Christ may dwell in our hearts by faith, that we may be rooted and grounded in love, that we may have strength to comprehend the breadth, length, height, and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that we may be filled with the fullness of God and accomplish this through the reading and preaching of your word received by faith. In Jesus' name, amen. It's kind of interesting being a pastor. I get inundated with all kinds of mail about churches, about different programs that I just have to have that we just need to do. This is just what was in the mailbox this morning when I got here. Uh, Three things. It was a light day, I think. Um, It it just seems that way anyway at times. That, you know, I have letters about this program and that program and how we're just not going to do well if we don't do what they do over some big church somewhere else and all of that kind of stuff. And as you're about to see, in a sense, well, eh, not see, but... I kind of wonder how I would respond if I got a letter from a prominent church leader that I did not know, who had never been to this church and had never really talked with you people, and yet wrote me a letter, us a letter, and told us what we needed to do, what our spiritual problems were, and how God addresses those things. I wonder how we would respond if I stood up one Sunday morning and read that to you. That is sort of the context of this letter. Because the church in Colossae did not know Paul. Now, there may have been a couple of individuals who had gone to hear his preaching in Ephesus when he was there for three years. But By and large, they did not know him personally, but they knew of him. And yet Paul, from their perspective, probably out of the blue, sends a letter to address problems in their church. Problems that they probably didn't see or recognize for themselves. And so as we look at this letter, as we begin to look at this letter, let us keep an ear open, because Perhaps Christ is addressing issues amongst us as well. Perhaps there is application for us as well. 
The big idea this morning is that Jesus speaks to churches in trouble through leaders he's chosen. That's basically the point from, I think, this introduction to the letter that they receive. The first idea here is that God establishes the leader of the ch- leadership of the church. We often know that the greeting of a letter is significant. It tells you who wrote something. And when you receive it, you want to know who sent it. So you can determine whether or not it's important. If the letter is from the IRS, it might be important. If the letter is from someone you've never heard of, who wants to sell you something, maybe not nearly as important. This letter is from Paul. Not just any guy named Paul, but an apostle of Christ Jesus. As I mentioned, Paul was not personally known to them, but they knew of his significance. They knew of his importance. Paul here is invoking his office so that they know that what he is writing has authority. He's not just writing them a birthday card, however nice birthday cards are. He's not just writing them a little bit of advice. He's not writing some sort of encouragement because he's heard they've had a hard day, but he is writing them specifically as as an apostle of Christ, as a messenger of Christ, who has something to say, Jesus has something to say, to that church. Writing with authority. A message that has to be heard by them. Not just tossed in the circular file like so much random garbage. He speaks for Jesus. That's the idea of being an apostle. It's it's someone who's uh, delegated to bring a message from the main person to someone else. He's an emissary, like an ambassador. An ambassador doesn't come to a foreign head of state and give his own opinion about something. He is there to represent the the nation that he is sent there for, the ruler of that nation. And so Paul was writing, representing Jesus Christ. He is not speaking his own opinion. And most of what he speaks about here is Jesus himself. This resonates with what Paul says to the, to the Corinthians in his first letter, in the second chapter. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That, if I can get on a soapbox for a second, that's what frightens me about Pulpit Freedom Sunday. That we depart, that some people want to depart from Paul's apostolic commitment to preach nothing but Christ and Him crucified. I don't care if the IRS tries to regulate what kind of political speech I can make on a Sunday. That's not what I'm supposed to be doing. That's not what I'm called to do. I'm called to preach Christ and Him crucified. The message of the Gospel. And that's precisely what Paul does. He says that he is an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. He did not apply for the office. He didn't see a a wanted ad, apostle, please contact. (laughs) He wasn't responding to something he saw on the internet. Obviously he didn't have an internet. Nonetheless, 
He didn't run for it. He didn't campaign. Make Paul apostle. You know, he, he didn't want people's vote to be an apostle. He didn't go to school to be an apostle. You know, it wasn't like, you know, special program just to be an apostle. None of that. He was trained. He was a rabbi. But he was in pursuit of destruction of the church as he's walking and riding his, his donkey along the road to Damascus with papers in his hand about the destruction of the church, and God interrupted him. Struck him blind for a few days. He was an apostle, not of his own choosing, but of the choosing of God himself. He's not the only one. Church leaders are chosen by God all the time. We call that now, in Presbyterian circles, the inward call. I had an inward call. Um, I was moving in one direction of my life. You know, I want to get a degree in college and make me some money. And something happened. I sensed a very different kind of thing. We also speak of the outward call which the people of God recognize that person as inwardly called by God, gifted by God, and then we install that. And so, But the important thing is the inward call. If that doesn't take place, then we shouldn't be externally calling, outward call to this person. There are elders and deacons in this room. I don't think they campaigned for their office. They were called by God to that office. They were recognized by God's people as suitable for that office. God has established the leadership of this congregation and every congregation. This does not mean that Paul was perfect. This did not mean that Paul was always um, living rightly. Paul was, in fact, imperfect. He was a sinner. He said he was the greatest sinner he knew in 1, Corinthians, uh, sorry, 1 Timothy 1.15. He sinned. We see his argument with Barnabas over what to do with John Mark. <coughs> Excuse me. The scripture doesn't tell us which one of those two men was right. Okay. We don't know. He was fallible in many ways, this man, Paul. He would make errors of judgment at times, and yet he was still an apostle. This letter is not written just by Paul, however. There's an and, and the and is Timothy, our brother. Notice the distinction that is there. He has not invoked Timothy's office. He mentions Timothy as our brother and, by extension, your brother. He is a fellow Christian. He, at this point, he's sort of a, a layperson. He's attached with Paul. He is significant in Paul's ministry. We read from Philippians chapter 2 that there was no one else like him. That he had not only his own concerns, but he cared about the interests of Christ himself. In a sense, he was a living illustration for the Philippians to notice what Paul said about Jesus. That it's not just Jesus who's supposed to do that, but we are supposed to consider the interests of others, particularly those of Jesus. Paul also wrote that you know Timothy's proven worth to the Philippians. 
how he was a son with a father he has served me in the gospel. And so Timothy is someone who is all about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, he's not an apostle. He is a man of God. And he is used of God to write this letter. We can't divide it up. Oh, yeah, you know, just like those uh, the, the source... Um, document guys who try to divide up, you know, where the different sources of Matthew and Luke came from. We could sort of try to figure out, oh yeah, Paul wrote this part of the letter to the Colossians and Timothy wrote this part. We don't know. And you know what? It doesn't matter. Because the Spirit is the one who inspired both Paul and Timothy as they composed this letter So it is not just their advice, but it is the very word of God himself. And though they themselves are fallible, this letter is not. It is infallible, inerrant, no mistakes, no errors, because of God's inspiration of this thing. And so while they didn't pastor this particular church, God used them as part of the greater leadership of the church to guide and direct it. So sometimes submitting to God means submitting to those that he places in authority. And they were meant to submit themselves to what God was saying in this letter. Second part of this is that Christ is the source of dedication and faithfulness. It's not not just important to recognize who Paul is and how he says he is, but it's also significant how he views the people to whom he is writing. What he says about them is meant to be true of every Christian who has ever lived. And I'm going to start sort of at the end, because that's the most important thing. That they are in Christ. We cannot understand what else is said here and in the rest of the letter unless we understand this idea that they are in Christ or united to Christ, hence the title of the sermon. What does that mean to be united to Christ? That means a a couple of different things. One, it means that we are united with our representative. Jesus does what he does in his earthly ministry as our representative. He's doing it on our behalf. We have a little problem with Asher's paperwork. And so we've asked Senator McCain's office to help us out because he's our representative. And so he and his office are representing us before uh, the uh, United States Customs and Immigration Services Department because there's a problem there. And so Jesus represents us before God because we have a problem. And that problem is sin. And Jesus represents us to take that away from us. Not only that, but we have solidarity with him. Whatever happened to him, in fact, happens to us. Which is why Paul says things like, I was crucified with him. I wasn't crucified. But my union, my solidarity with Jesus is such that I was crucified when he was crucified. What he experienced, I have undergone as well. Not just the crucifixion, but the resurrection. 
So there's that legal, representative, solidarity aspect to the union, but there's also the idea of being vitally connected to him, such that the life he has, the power and the energy he has, is communicated to all those who are united to him. So what we see is that all that Christ has done is for those who are united to him. We see this in justification, clearly. Meaning, because he's, <clears throat> excuse me, because he's united to us, it's as if he himself sinned. And so he bears that sin for us. He removes that sin from us. His obedience isn't given to us because we're united to him. It's as if we really obeyed when it's Jesus who obeyed. And not only that, but he takes the punishment due our sin, so it's as if we ourselves were actually punished upon the cross. And that is why God justifies us in Christ. Because we're united to him. And that's how all the rest of this makes sense. He calls them saints. It's an adjective, actually. It can be used in that sense as a noun in this case. But basically, holy. They're holy. They are dedicated. They are consecrated. They are set apart to God for his purposes. That's the idea we got from those passages in Leviticus that we're to be mindful of. We see, if we, if we listened at all, we recognize that it is because God is holy that they themselves were to also be holy because he was their God and they were his people. And we see also this aspect of, of he says, because, you know, you have to be holy, consecrate yourselves, set yourselves apart. How, how is this working here in this particular text? In Christ, they have objectively been set apart for God. It is talking about their position, their status before God. In Christ, they have been set apart. They now belong to God. Okay, But it doesn't really stop there. Because they are vitally connected to Jesus, something else is going to be happening in their lives. It's not just that they're positionally holy, but they're also going to become personally holy. That idea from Leviticus of con- uh, consecrate yourselves and how uh, Moses fleshes that out in terms of obedience to God. And so we're positionally holy, but we're supposed to become personally holy because of our union with Christ himself. They were to dedicate themselves to him. If you follow the Boston Red Sox like I follow the Boston Red Sox. (laughs) Which means that maybe one of you follows the Boston Red Sox. Okay, Paul's here. Three. Um, One of the things that started the downward spiral for Bobby Valentine as manager of the Red Sox was questioning the dedication of Kevin Euclid. That's one of those things of like, really? Seriously? There's no one who 
works harder at playing baseball than Kevin Euclid. If you want a picture of dedication to baseball, he's one of the guys you'll see in that little photo. Doesn't mean he's always good, but he's dedicated. Kevin Euclid is dedicated to baseball. We can be dedicated to many things, but the key here is not dedication to things, but to a person. Because we are united to Christ, we are to be dedicated to Him. Now, if you're dedicated to Him, (coughs) that means you're going to also be dedicated to everything He's dedicated to. But so often we tend to think that we become holy by pursuing holiness, by being dedicated to holiness. That uh, the church grows because we're dedicated to the church. We're to be dedicated to Christ first and foremost. And because we're dedicated to Christ and seeking Christ, we will grow in holiness because that's what he's dedicated to, our holiness. We will grow numerically because he's concerned about that and he's going to work through us to accomplish that. But it's about him working in us. Our position our identity in Christ is must begin to, and this is what he's doing, not what we're doing, manifest itself in how we live. Lost in sports again, because this is all I know. No, it's not all I know. The Celtics signed Darko Milicic. I don't know if any of you have ever heard of Darko Milicic. He was supposed to be this great player out of Europe. He was signed by the Detroit Pistons, the number two pick in the draft. There was lots of hope and promise, and he was a flop. Very talented, just couldn't get it all together. He's, you know, the Celtics are his seventh team. He's signed as a bench player for the veteran minimum. But this is what Doc Rivers, the, the, the coach of the Celtics, is saying to him. You are not D- Darko. You are Celtic. He's trying to get him to shift his identity from his old old mindset of I am Darko, the flop, to I am now a Celtic. And that changes how I approach this game. A couple weeks ago, uh, if you were on my Facebook, you saw there was a Patriots player who Aaron Hernandez used to play in the University of Florida who was drafted late because he had some problems. He embraced the patriot way. He became, that's that's how he thinks about it. I became a patriot, and that changed how I looked at everything about football. So what Paul is saying is, you are in Christ, and that uh, that changes everything, how you view everything, and how it begins to manifest itself in how you live. A change of identity taking place. I spent too much time on that. The second part of this is that they're also faithful. And there's a question. Is this act, is this adjective meant to be active? Is this saying that they're trusting Christ? Or is this adjective passive, meaning that they are trustworthy? Is it about what they're doing? Or is it about who they are? It's not easily answered. But we are united with Christ, and therefore we are trusting in Christ. You're not united to Him unless you trust Him. There's no union apart from faith in Christ. And it is by virtue of that vital union that we become trust 
worthy or faithful. In other words, there's our we trust in Him, we rely upon Him, and what happens as we do that is He works in us and changes us and so that we become trustworthy ourselves because He's trustworthy and He's making us in His image. If no one can rely upon you for anything, something's wrong. You need to get in touch with Christ who can make you trustworthy. So, you know, these two things are connected. The trusting and the trustworthy. First comes the faith, then comes the faithfulness. We become trustworthy as we trust. And all of it is tied up with our union in Christ. And so, in Christ we see we are set apart and we believe so that we become dedicated and trustworthy. Third part of this. First we've seen God establishes the leadership of the church. Then we saw, hopefully, that Christ is the source of our dedication and faithfulness. And lastly, Christ speaks to churches in trouble. Now, it's easy to not think that this church is in trouble because it's not like the letter to the Galatians where he starts off kind of going, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched or deceived you? There's none of that language here. There's none of the harsh tone that we see to the Corinthians as well. And so this, this says, even though they're in trouble, there's a, there's a softer feel to how Paul is going to address um, this particular church. But we have to remember that Paul is writing them for Christ. We have to understand that, that Christ is speaking to them through Paul and Timothy as they write this letter. And we know from places like Revelation 2 that Jesus speaks to churches that are in trouble. For instance, verse 9, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Paul, uh, sorry, Jesus speaks to churches who are in trouble. In the Revelation, he speaks through John, and here he speaks through Paul to this congregation. Rightly understood, as our confession and the other Reformed confessions speak, that preaching is the Word of God. It's not the infallible Word of God. Let's be careful here. Preachers err. But we are to think of it as the Word of God to us, that Jesus speaks to, to the church through the preaching of faithful pastors. And so as we read this book, as we listen to it being preached by this very fallible pastor, we are to remember that Jesus speaks through it to us too. We are to believe that which it declares. We are to apply that which he tells us to, you know, to do the things He tells us to do. Jesus is speaking to us. But we recognize that this church was to the believers in Colossae. 
It was in what we called Asia Minor, or the, you know, the province of Asia, back in the times of the apostles, in the Roman province of Asia. It's the region that we now call Turkey. It was on a significant trade road that went from Ephesus into the east. Okay? And so it was, in many ways, at one point anyway, a very prominent city because of that trade road. It was known for its wool. In fact, the, the Romans named it Colossae in, because of the Latin purple wool. Its name means purple wool. It's in honor of their textile trade, their significance in that region. When we get to Laodicea, we'll see that they're also known for their wool. Well, Laodicea is just a few miles away from Colossae. But something significant happened during the Roman occupation of that region. They moved the road north, away from Colossae, toward Laodicea. And so Colossae was dwindling in its significance, in its population, in its power, and in its prestige. Think Detroit. Think about what Detroit used to be. A manufacturing center. A sports center. It still sort of is a sports center. But I mean, you had, you know, this is no mistake. Joe Lewis was from Detroit. It was part, it was part of the boxing, the hub, one of the hubs of the boxing universe. You had the, the Red Wings. The Tigers were a very significant baseball team. Sorry, the Lions never were. Okay. But there was this sports prominence. That's why they call it Title Town, which still boggles my mind. Anyway, but also, what else was it called? Motown. There was a whole recording industry and style of music that was centered in Detroit. And so there was economic prominence and cultural prominence to Detroit. And now it's nothing. It's unemployment town. It's falling to pieces. You can buy a house for $2 on eBay town. That was Colossae. It was in that process of decline and and, and falling apart when Paul writes this. But because it was a trade city, it was ethnically diverse. You had the, uh, the locals there, the Phrygians. But because of the Greek occupation at one point, you have lots of Greeks running around. Because of the current Roman occupation, you have lots of Romans running around. Because there was trade, you had a Jewish population from the disbursement of the Jews out of Israel and Jerusalem in previous generations. And so you have all of these different, it's kind of like America in a lot of ways, almost a melting pot of of ideas and and ways of life and uh, ethnic cultures and and, uh, practices. It was pluralistic. But there's also the danger of syncretism. (coughs) All of those forces pressing in on the church to try and make the church in its own image. They probably didn't know the danger they were in. But as we'll see next week, Epaphras knew, which is why he sought out Paul. And so he says to them, grace and peace. This is a typical greeting, and yet it communicates all that Paul is offering them in Christ. 
It is a summation of everything that he is saying they need in the rest of the letter. They need grace and peace. They need, as some have put it, God, God's riches at Christ's expense. It's a nice little acronym for grace. I think it kind of gets to the point of things. But the point is, is that they needed to continue to look to Christ for that grace. There were pressures to look elsewhere for grace. And Paul is going to be bringing them back to Jesus, pointing them to the sufficiency of Christ, and that he is the only one who is sufficient to give them grace. And all of the other things that they're looking for, for help and strength and wisdom, are not going to give it to them. It is Christ alone. They need to stop being distracted by these things. They probably didn't realize they were distracted by those things. Peace, wholeness, that idea of shalom had to have been difficult in this agenda-ridden, pluralistic city. In some ways, sort of sounds like Tucson. Tucson, with the run-down streets. Tucson that has the certain members of the council wanting to really buy into the whole Occupy Tucson thing. Other members, obviously, not wanting anything to do with the Occupy Tucson thing. There's the agenda of the modern streetcar. You see a pull, a tug. You know, um, all kinds of things politically that are playing out very different philosophical ideas. You know, you, you have people mostly in this part of town who are very conservative, people on the other side of town, uh, you know, mostly liberal in their, in their politics. You have the different cultures as, as there, are, there are large regions that are, that are very much influenced by the Mexican-American population, and then you have some that are very influenced by the Anglo population. It's a melting pot in some ways that hasn't really quite melted yet. It's still sort of like the chocolate it hasn't quite melted in with the butterscotch, for those of you who like to cook. Okay. Hasn't become a stew yet. So there's these pulls, these conflicts, these, these different agendas that, that, that the church can get caught up in if it's not careful. We must be careful. Did they know that they needed grace and peace? Did they understand the danger that they were in? Do we understand? Do we know that we need grace and peace? Do we understand the danger we're in as we seek to be faithful in this place? Grace and peace from God, our Father. These are the gifts of a father to his children. When I give gifts to my children, it's not because they've been good. It's because I love them. The peace and the grace are not gifts that are earned by the fact that we've been good, that we've been obedient, that we've been faithful. 
but in spite of that sometimes. They are signs of God's fatherly love to His people who have been adopted in Christ. But they come from the Father. They also come in Christ. This is what it says in Ephesians 1.3. We have every spirit. He has blessed us with every, spirit, every blessing, spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus. And so they do not come apart from Christ. They only come when we have Christ. He is, in a sense, the fountain from which all of those blessings flow. All of the things that come to us in salvation, our justification, our adoption, our sanctification, our glorification, uh, the gifts for ministry, the, the peace that we need, all of these things and more come to us from one source, and that source is Jesus Himself. And they are... They come to us in Christ through the Spirit. Because our our union with Christ is a spiritual union. It is accomplished by the Holy Spirit. Sort of like atomic theory. I gave up reading. I remember not reading all things, but physics. I remember... Hawking's book. I was reading that back in seminary, and I realized that a world was passing me by, and there was no way I could catch up. Okay, But the idea that you have protons and electrons. And the protons, which aren't supposed to be together because they're the same charge, are together. And the electrons, which are of a different charge and therefore would be attracted to the protons, aren't. And he starts talking about quarks. I'm sure it's gone far beyond quarks now. Those of you who are into engineering and physics, my ignorance has just been revealed. (laughs) And frankly, I have to be okay with that. I don't know if you have to be okay with that, but I have to be okay with that. And we're going to talk about this in Colossians, that he is, that Christ is the one that holds it all together, and he holds it all together by the Spirit. And that, When I look at atomic theory and quantum mechanics and all that stuff, that just says it makes no sense apart from Christ, who holds it all together. Maybe a bad illustration. Because I'm ignorant in that region. But they're received through the Spirit by faith. No faith, no Christ. No Christ, no blessings. No grace, no peace. So I think we need to listen. The Colossian church was planted in a declining pluralistic city. They probably thought that they were doing okay, but there were problems around them and in them. Paul wrote to them to address those problems and reorient them to the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ. He was calling them to live out who they were in Christ, 
to make the person, sorry, the positional personal as they depended upon Christ. The apostle had a lot to say to that declining pluralistic, well, that church in the declining pluralistic city. And he has a lot to say about this church in a declining pluralistic city. Will we listen? Will we believe? Will we apply it? Or are we going to treat it like those those cards and letters I get every week about the latest, greatest little program that I have to embrace? I pray that we listen. So let's pray. Father, we thank you as I, as I prayed in Sunday school that Christ so loves his church that he laid down his life for the church, that he sent the Spirit to create the church, to hold it together, to empower it, to do ministry, that Christ so loves the church that he examines the churches and that he uses his word to prune the church, to call it out of unfaithfulness, to, to, to commend forth faithfulness. And so may we have the mindset of Christ is speaking to us as he speaks to that church. That we might be different when we're done from who we are now as individuals and as a congregation. Reshape us, Father, by directing us to the supremacy and the sufficiency of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.